the latest in agricultural media and some smart conversation. This is the Ag Communicators Network podcast, and here's your host, Kelsey Litchfield. Welcome to episode number two of the AgCom Network podcast. Holly, they've let us come back uh, for a second <laughs> episode. Good. Facebook allowed us to come right back on in. And we have a very interesting show today. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, before we get started, I'd like to introduce myself. Um, I'm Kelsey Lichfield. I'm with the University of Illinois College of Aces. And I also have Holly Spangler with me. Um, from Farm Progress. Hello, Holly. Hello, Kelsey. And our guest today is Chris Clayton from DTN, the Progressive Farmer. And Chris, you are the Ag Policy Editor, correct? Yeah. Okay. So the way this is going to work today, we're going to go ahead and fire off some questions for you, and then people can come on, jump on, and ask their own questions that they may have for you. Um, And Holly and I will help um, facilitate that. So we'll go ahead and get started. Chris, if you just want to go ahead and introduce yourself, tell us more about you um, and your background in agriculture and journalism. Well, I'm uh, here from DTN World News Headquarters in Omaha. Um, and um, I graduated from the University of Missouri in uh, 93. And I've been a journalist ever since. I bounced around from uh, newspapers in uh, Missouri, Illinois, Kansas, until I ended up uh, at the Omaha World Herald uh, back uh, exactly 20 years ago. And uh, I mainly covered Iowa. I was interested in uh, working for the World Herald to cover things like the Iowa caucuses and stuff like that. Um, But I did a little bit of everything in terms of uh, news coverage, you know, whether it was criminal cases or whatever. Um, and then around uh, early, around mid-2001, I accidentally came across a large cattle fraud case, just uh, purely by accident. Um, but I ended up breaking the story, and um, <clears throat> I didn't really know anything about the cattle feeding business at the time. Um, so ended up delving deeply into that, you know, people, there were literally like uh, a couple hundred million dollars lost in this case. It kind of got swept under a little bit because it happened uh, just before 9-11. But uh, this case really took about two years to uh, finally come to a head. Um, And so they, they couldn't deal with the bankruptcy on it because the the, the criminal case was so complicated um, uh, but the bankruptcy lawyers couldn't understand what these guys had done in this Ponzi scheme until they actually went ahead and confessed and explained how it all happened and what they did. But uh, at the end of the day, um, I ended up doing a lot of cattle livestock stories. Um, and, and then within maybe 18 months, you know, the first BSE case happened. Next thing I know, basically, I'm, I'm the ag writer for the World Herald. So I just kind of fall into this uh, livestock situation. And next thing I know, I'm the guy who uh, is our main ag writer. Um, and 
I didn't even know DTN was uh, was based here. Didn't know much of anything about it. Uh, I focused mainly on what other newspapers were doing. But uh, I met Urban Lehner, who was the uh, editor in chief of DTN at the time, and uh, we started uh, getting along, along really well. And uh, you know, over time, I, I, I liked the idea of. Uh, moving to some place where I wasn't competing with uh, sports coverage, basically. <laughs> um, you know, you, you, the daily newspapers now are really dominated by sports. Uh, the, the Omaha World Herald, the Lincoln Journal Star, they live and die by the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Everything else, though, is second to that. You know, if you want to travel, uh, we can't travel, spend money because we got to send 18 guys to the bowl game. You know, I mean, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, and that gets old after a while. So mm -hmm. I finally moved, went ahead and moved to DTN where we don't have sports uh, coverage. And I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, whether we're going to be on the front because, uh, you know, the Huskers won a big game or whatever. Yeah. Right. So, right. Uh, so that that uh, kind of changed my career pretty dramatically around 2005, and um, I started to spend a lot more time going out to Washington and, uh, excuse me, following policy issues out there. And and I, what I learned over time was that uh, pretty much every situation that comes down the pike in some way, shape, or form has a has a connection to agriculture. It really doesn't matter what's going on in D.C. There's a tie. You know, today the big story is these tariffs on uh, steel and uh, aluminum and all of the reaction from all the other countries is to slap tariffs on our agriculture uh, exports. So, um, you know, there, every, everything that happens in some way, shape or form, you, you can draw back to something related to agriculture that affects our readers in some way. Mm -hmm. For sure. It's kind of the long and short of it there. So you talk about your story and how you just kept on just learning about the next thing. And um, you gradually kind of not stumbled into things, but you learned about other different topics and you had a genuine interest to learn about those topics. And I think that's one of the main things that makes a journalist is you have and you want to learn about a certain topic. Would you agree? Yeah, there has to be a natural curiosity and, um, and desire to really look at, at something a little bit differently. Uh, and, and, you know, and you also have to break your own, um, uh, what would you say, uh, perceptions. I think probably my perception in coming out of college uh, in my mid-20s, the idea of covering agriculture it's like, what? Uh, I don't want to really write the fact, hey, they planted corn, B, they harvested corn. Uh, and what do you do for the next six months of the year? I, you know, that was just not uh, uh, something I was interested in, in doing. But uh, over time, you also began to see some of the uh, other work that people did in uh, covering agriculture. And, uh, and you learn all of the different <clears throat> issues that you can touch upon, whether it's environment or trade, um, certainly politics, uh, etc. Uh, being in the Midwest, growing up in the Midwest, uh, you know, I grew up, I came out of uh, school in the mid 80s, right in the middle of the uh, farm crisis and right before really the uh, drought in the late 80s. So 
the small towns that I grew up in and around were pretty uh, economically depressed, and they still are you know, in a lot of ways. Uh, but, you know, they live and die by, uh, by agriculture. And, um, and so you understand now as a, uh, somebody who lives in the Midwest or Plains, you know, how much our economy uh, really demands that uh, things do go well uh, out in rural America or it impacts uh, everybody in Des Moines, Kansas City, Omaha. They may not realize it, but, uh, but there is a huge connection there. Well, I was just thinking about the farm bill coverage that you do a lot of, Chris. You know, you've covered several farm bills now. What do you see happening this time around, you know, that stands out to you or is different from the past or, you know, and how does that, how, how is your coverage maybe differed this time? Um, what has changed over time is that the farm bill has become a lot more of a partisan tool um, mm -hmm. than it used to be. It used to be region, regional fights the Democrats and the Republicans from Iowa, Nebraska, the Midwest, uh, whatever, uh, would have more regional disputes with Southerners about uh, mm -hmm. farm programs. And that was the huge battle, was, uh, was, the, was Southerners versus Northerners and Midwesterners uh, mm -hmm. on farm programs. Now it's much more Republican versus Democrat over uh, SNAP program. The, food aid programs and things of that nature. And the, and the actual farm programs themselves, I haven't, I haven't really been talked about that much. Uh, I mean, there are only so many times you can write the same story. Hey, got to protect crop insurance. Uh, and over and over, I was listening to a forum just yesterday out of Kansas, and that was all that was focused on uh, there. Just you know, protect the crop insurance program. Um, so it's... Uh, different purely because it's a much more partisan situation now than it used to be um and you see that in the farm bill just basically got sucked up into everything else that goes on in dc you have to be on the right or the left side of the situation and uh if you're in the middle you better pick a side basically sure. um so it um it's a little more difficult uh at the at the moment um I'm not really dropping everything to go out to D.C. to uh, to cover um, what might be happening with the Senate bills, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, this time around, I'll uh, monitor a little more from the uh, uh, off of the Internet and um, and approach things a little bit that way. But I'm trying to take an approach to maybe just finding a few more feature pieces. Uh, related to farm bill topics that will allow mm -hmm. me to get out in the country a little bit more rather than just DC uh, and Omaha. Sure. And so if the if the debate is now between Republicans and Democrats rather than Midwest versus the South, how is that impacting, you know, the actual debate about the farm bill portion, you know, that that our readers would be interested in? How how is that affecting that debate and 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 are those issues getting discussed the way, you know, you think they might need to be well in the house they really didn't get discussed very much um there's a huge issue maybe with uh, what to do with the commodity safety net and whether how much it should be changed one problem <coughs> excuse me is that uh, there isn't a lot of money um so that that's a problem can't really make a lot of changes 
if there isn't a lot of money. But some of the other issues that, that have not been discussed uh, so much is we know that there's a huge water quality problem out in uh, in the Midwest, uh, particularly the upper Midwest. Yeah. Well, they're looking to cut conservation over uh, basically about 800 million over the stretch of the FAR bill, get rid of the main program that deals with working lands, the CSP, and roll a little bit more money into the equip program. They, they, but there are no innovative solutions being offered to expand conservation in different ways. There's no discussion happening sure. in that realm. Uh, what can you do to increase more um, private participation and investment in conservation, for instance, because the water quality problems don't go away on their own. Um, you, you're going to risk the situation. Everybody, hey, we don't have WOTUS anymore, so everybody thinks water quality uh, regulatory issues are out the door, don't have to worry about them. They're, they don't go away. Um, you know, more cities are going to get a little more annoyed like the Des Moines has done. Um, there are going to be more uh, situations come up where um, somebody is going to conventionally sue and say, you know, that pipe that comes out of the end of a tile is a point source. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a hole there. We can see it. That should be deemed a point source. Uh, it's, it's the risk, I think, that comes down the line when you just say, ah, we don't have to worry about that anymore. We're just going to take a little bit more money away from conservation. Well, what's the loss? And very few people having that conversation. Um, so those kind of things, I think, are being lost because of the lack of um, lack of creativity, I would say, in this farm bill discussion, lack of vision. It's sure. just let's extend out most of everything that's out there right now. Mm -hmm. We'll make a few cuts here. We'll get a big fight going over uh, food aid issues. And, um, and we'll just let the ag economy roll on as it is. Yeah. One of the things when talking about these topics, what I think of is I think of um, building trust with not only your audience, but with your sources. And Chris, as you talk about these topics with the farm bill and your coverage um, through DTN, how do you um, build relationships with those that you are reporting on, such as um, when you're talking about um, the water quality and things like that? You have great knowledge of it, but how do you build those relationships with your sources in order to get the right information out? Uh, yeah, what's well, very important to be honest um, and upfront um, and not ignore a problem, I, I think. Um, I think the best journalists don't just uh, glaze everything over with a, uh, with a lot of icing and uh, sweetness, but you're honest and, and direct. Mm -hmm. I, I view myself, you know, I've gotten into some headbutting with uh, different people over issues such as uh, climate change or water quality stories, or things of that nature that maybe I'm not, quote, presenting ag in the best light or whatever. My art, my point back is I am the friend that tells you you've got to turn the keys over. Uh, that you, that uh, it's the, the friend that's honest with you say, Hey, you, you can't treat her that way. You gotta be, you gotta be more respectful. Uh, the friend that says, yeah, if you don't keep going to class, you're not going to, you're going to flunk out, you know, 
uh, sometimes the your friends are the ones that have to be the most honest with you, and that's like the, basically the way I, I approach um, my job. Um, you know, I got a little bit of pushback and criticism last week from, on Twitter from some guys who don't want to hear that. Uh, you know, the, the the House version of the Farm Bill doesn't make any changes to um, um, to means testing for farmers or uh, or the volume of uh, commodity, the safety net that you can receive. So, you know, you can basically be a millionaire and still collect, collect farm program payments. You don't have to work on the farm and collect farm program payments. I can go sign, if the farm house farm bill goes through the way it is, I can go sign up with my cousin and uh, say that I'm providing management assistance and I can receive farm program payments. Um, that sounds really good to give the, hey, you know, want to sign up your cousin, you want to uh, don't worry about uh, payment caps or anything like that, that comes back to bite down the line when, when uh, two or three years from now, EWG goes, hey, look at all these people in New York who are suddenly making uh, millions off of farm programs. And then it comes back to bite you in the next farm bill because they get a lot tighter. Um, and somebody has to be the one to point out, is it really okay to make all the SNAP people work 20 hours a week but say that you know, Uncle Bill or Cousin Billy going to college full time can collect $125,000 a year in ARC payments. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, does that really jibe well? Uh, it certainly doesn't jibe well with average taxpayers. Uh, I can, you know, my um, my family down in Missouri, none of whom are directly in agriculture, are, are among those who cuss the biggest, the big payments to uh, to to the to the uh, to the largest farmers in in their community, because they've seen the consolidation that's happened just where we live, where we used to have a bunch of farmers in the area, and now we have five, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and they've become very um, uh, angry about uh, the safety net because of that. And yet, it feels it's like long those short, short, basically. Sure. So, it feels like those conversations aren't happening, though, as we're fighting about SNAP and fighting between Republican and Democrats. Like the real meat of what we could be fixing that doesn't get talked about. I think you'll see that a little bit more in the Senate, uh, certainly because Senator Grassley uh, will be raising some of these issues uh, as well when it comes to uh, farm program safety net. He'll be bringing up some of these topics, and I, I think the senators are much more keen and aware to this stuff uh, than what we saw in the House, what's going on in the House bill. Sure, sure. Chris, I'm curious. We haven't talked about you know trade and all of that much, and, and, and you cover a lot of, of that as well. And I'm curious, you mentioned Twitter. How are you using Twitter in your coverage of of um, trade and and thinking about some of the information that the president's sharing, you know, about the decisions he's making. How how are you using Twitter in, in some of those conversations and 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 following that trade situation? Well, it's um, you know, depending on who you're following and how many people you're following, um, Twitter can basically function as a as a news wire. Mm-hmm. I mean. Um, just this morning, as we were, as I'm following all of this stuff that's going down, 
I uh, see AP news flash on Twitter that Mexico is going to retaliate against, uh, you know, products like pork bellies and grapes uh, were, were a couple that were mentioned. So um, you use Twitter uh, a lot of times as a news feed, basically, to see what exactly, because it, it's hard, you, nobody can keep track of it all, you know, and, you know, we're not Reuters or Bloomberg. We don't have hundreds of reporters around the world. So uh, the ability to just kind of keep track of the flow of conversation that is happening on uh, on any given topic, whether it is uh, the uh, the tariffs or uh, farm bill, or noticing that you're suddenly seeing a bunch of images about uh, drought in the uh, in the southern plains or fires, uh, right? You know, so from that side of things, it's it's a literally like just following and seeing what is, uh, what is happening out there. What's, um, the, um, the, the main messages coming out and then taking our articles and, uh, resending them out. It's difficult, uh, in one sense, because, uh, a byline used to be pretty, um, anonymous, you know, nobody in the world knew who Clayton was. <laughs> Now right. you are on social media. They understand your personality, um, you know, whether you're sarcastic, uh, yeah. as I like to be from time to time uh, daily, uh, or, you know, your sports fans. Uh, so it, it uh, does allow you to a, a show that one thing, A, you're a human being. You, you click on and you like the puppy uh, pictures on Twitter or whatever. Uh, and secondly, it allows you to really see everything that is kind of going on out there in the world that is suddenly picking up a lot of traction. Sure. I tell people a lot that I think of Twitter as a coffee shop. You're there to yeah. have conversations with people, um, interact with people. And then from a communicator journalist standpoint, I see it's important to be on there to share news like we talked about. But also while you're at live events, being that representative for people that can't be there. And Chris, I guess my question is, why is it important for people to be engaged not only on Twitter, but on social media as journalists um, and interacting with those that not only are journalists as well, but being a voice for others that can't be at a certain live event or Example, they can't be in Washington, D.C., but they want to know what's going on. Why is it important to have that presence? Well, it's uh, it's just the, the new medium of, uh, of what we do now. And uh, we've changed with the technology. Um, you know, back when I a uh, long, long time ago now, it seems, graduated college, I, you didn't even have the ability to share information from a uh, uh, from an event at all you know your your editors nobody knew what was going on you would go out and cover a uh, car accident or a crime or something like that and at the very beginning we didn't even have a cell phone to communicate and call back and say we need a photographer here yeah um over time we changed and we adapted with uh, the phone technology and was able to uh, you know from the very beginning um call back to the newsroom and uh, ask for help or transcribe a story or something like that. 
now you basically are able to do that online and go blow by blow of, uh, of a particular event or a comment that is uh, poignant or a video that uh, is certainly newsworthy. All of these things are just the changing dynamics of, uh, of news. And if you are, I, I can't think of what I'm, what I'm doing of following a, a, a news other than maybe the smallest local paper anymore uh, that uh, <clears throat> doesn't have some sort of social media presence. Yeah. yeah. And you do see that, you know, the local paper where I live um, doesn't do that. At the same time, there is a kid in my, uh, my kid's high school who does blow by blow on Facebook all of the sporting events. So I'm not reading the local paper anymore. I'm watching this kid's uh, Twitter feed and Facebook post online. If uh, our local high school is out uh, playing a game somewhere or uh, whatever, because this kid is actually doing a better job of, uh, of providing something instantaneously than the local paper is. Uh, and so he's doing the job that the local paper used to, you know, we used to have the local paper for. Mm -hmm. So it's just uh, the evolving um, way that the media has adapted over time. Sure. I can only imagine what's going to happen in even five years, how much um, technology is going to change. And I feel like as journalists, we have to continue to evolve or we will miss the mark in serving our audiences. Sure. It does, though, create uh, a different kind of level of, uh, of stress. Uh, it used to be you shut the laptop off, you went home, and uh, you, know, you did not think about work at the end of the, after that. Now uh, something is happening at 8.30, 9 o'clock, uh, 11 o'clock at night, and uh, I'm posting a blog or something, or I'm sending out tweets on it, or you know, different things happening. So, it, it as a journalist, it changes uh, your uh, your life and work patterns a little bit because, you know, everything is now 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, something happened in you know the Chinese uh, ministry, uh, whatever comes out at, uh, you know, four o'clock our time on Sunday and, you know, does something, you know, you feel like you're obligated to, uh, to yeah. react mm -hmm. uh, because you don't want to be sitting around until the next day and, uh, and leaving your readership behind. That's I feel like I've read or heard somewhere where like the New York Times has, you know, they've totally changed and, and other major papers have changed their staffing hours around the president's suites. You know, there there's a team of editors <laughs> ready okay, to go, you know, whatever, 4.30 in the morning before he's tweeting so they can report on whatever might come out of that, you know, and then their day ends sooner, but, you know, theoretically, um, but they've they've changed their staffing just to, just to meet that exact need. But, you know, we also have these risks now because people post things and you see them and you're immediately uh, shocked or surprised or it catches you emotionally and you want to send, you want to go ahead and send it, send it out. Um, and, 
and then you find out after the fact that the, well, that photo actually did not go with this situation or, or whatever. Um, and so sometimes our own desire to, uh, to be right there and be responsive. And then you find out, well, this is, this was fake or, uh, in, or just erroneous, whatever it was. Um, and, uh, so you have to be a lot more leery in, in some sense of, you know, knowing that the information that you're getting is, uh, is credible. Mm-hmm. Sure. Chris, I'm curious, how often are you going out to DC or how often are you sitting in, you know, um, you know, any, any lawmakers office or meeting with, um, staffers, that kind of thing. Like how, how do you manage that, that part of the, the, the job or, and and relative to like, how much are you doing on the phone, I guess? Mm -hmm. I'm probably doing a, a little less, um, direct travel right at the moment. We go out at least once a month to Washington for the WASD, uh, the world at the supply and demand estimates. And uh, that's the, the focus of that trip, but I will build in the whole week. Uh, generally, I'll go out there ahead of the uh, ahead of the crop report or I will stay on extended time after the crop report and uh, do that mainly to pick up other things, whether it's going to congressional hearings, um, other events that are going on in town. Um, excuse me. Um, or maybe I've got some interviews lined up with uh, specific uh, lawmakers or uh, others involved. Um, I'm not generally sitting around. Uh, well, I take you know every now and then I will make the point of specifically reaching out to a particular lawmaker um, when I'm out there to uh, try to get a sit-down interview. A lot of times in D.C. though. You're literally grabbing guys as they're coming off the floor after a vote. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a, there's a there's an area called the speaker's lounge uh, in the house. And, you know, that when they're all in there doing a series of votes, you can pass somebody a note handed to, that gets handed to a lawmaker. And you get, he gets pulled off the floor and, you know, you talk to him or her for a few minutes. Uh, kind of the same with the Senate. You know, you're you're walking in the Senate hallway. I, I was literally standing there um, about a, a month ago. What well, was during the middle of that whole situation? I take that back with the Section 199 tax oh. situation. And here comes Senator Thune walking down. And next thing I know, you know, you see these videos all the time of the, the reporter walking with the, the senator or whatever. And that's just basically, you know, half the time you're asking them questions while you're walking with them to the elevator or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's those kind of uh, catching uh, people or you find that they're going to be speaking at a particular event and you make the point of going to that event to hear them speak and ask them a few questions afterwards, that sort of thing. It, uh, it's all over the place, basically. But, uh, yeah, what I generally know when I go out there is that I doubt on a daily basis that there's going to be something that, that I won't have anything to do. I'm always going to have something I can do. I do make the point of going to the commodity and the uh, and the general farm organizations. Uh, you know, well, hey, I'm going to be in town. Uh, can you visit about this or whatever? Uh, or if there's a particular um, issue that's hot at the moment, trying to track down some people who are uh, experts in that area. Sure. 
Chris, I have one more question for me. And personally, as a young journalist, I'm only 23 years old. What's your biggest piece of advice, I guess, to my, not only my generation, but maybe journalists in general? What's your biggest piece of advice for us? You should always be writing and filing. Um, I mean, um, I, I always view um, daily journalism literally like a baseball season. You know, you got to get up and take your swings at the bat every single day, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are the people, there's the idea that, oh, if you're working on a long project, you got to stop everything. Well, you can work on a project while you're dealing with everything else. Uh, but, um, you know, you, you can view it in, a, there are a ton of analogies, basically, but in daily journalism, you got to feed the beast. So you have to write basically every day. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you have to be, you do have to, you know, you use your own curiosity to, to work on articles. If you're curious about something, surely there are readers curious about uh, the same thing. Um, you know, I've written a couple of blockchain pieces over the last several months because uh, up until, um, you know, back at the beginning of the year, there was very little discussion about it. And then suddenly it became this thing everybody was talking about at different meetings. Um, so I became very, very curious about, well, you know, what's this mean for the average farmer mm-hmm. sort of thing. But um, that, too, is, you know, there was an old um, Birmingham news editor named Clark Stallworth, Birmingham, Alabama. And so I went to journalism school for four years. And then I went to Illinois and working for the Quincy Herald World Quincy Herald wig, which was the worst nine months of my life, by the way. But anyway, um, I, I went to this event uh, that this guy, uh, Clark Stallworth was, uh, was doing. And I always remember, he just said, you know, I'm paying you 50 cents a day for your newspaper. He says, when you write something, the very beginning always should begin with what does this mean to the reader? Um, you know, and that, always should be the mindset when you're writing something is uh, what does it mean to the people you're writing? You know, it doesn't mean that they, you know, the city council voted to raise the tax levy. It means your property taxes are going to go up uh, $10 uh, per, you know, hundred thousand dollars or whatever. Mm-hmm. You have to write it more per, towards for the perspective of your readership. And, sure. and that's always something to keep in mind as well. Um, Chris, do you have a particular time of day when you like to write? Um, I like to uh, do more editing and writing in the morning. Same. Um, I've got coffee sitting right next to me. I got NPR in the background listening, and uh, I like to uh, to get stuff out uh, like that. I feel like that the day has uh, been productive if I've got something that I'm filing early in the morning. Yeah. Um, but, um, I used to like to write a lot more at night, but I think as I've gotten older, uh, I, uh, I don't really like to do it as much, but, um, uh, if I'm on a topic that I'm really interested in, it really doesn't matter the time of day. Uh, but generally I do find that, uh, I like to be productive early in the morning. Yeah, I agree. For 
this broadcast. And thanks, Chris, so much for coming on and chatting with us. I think it's a lot to learn about um, ag policy specifically. Um, before we went live, Chris and I were talking about how I have um, a bit of interest in ag policy. I think just being a journalist and um, kind of the whole theme of this conversation and the theme of this podcast, like Holly and I talked about the first episode, is just to keep learning um, and being with other and learning <coughs> others and um, along with this podcast is just keep learning and um, you'll you'll learn along the way and you'll make mistakes and things like that. Chris, you talked about your experiences with some of the other newspapers. And I think as a young journalist, just realizing that there's going to be humps in the road, but you're going to ultimately find your passion of what you would like to cover. So for sure, for sure. Chris, <laughs> do you have a favorite podcast? Like, is there something you really like to listen to? Um, podcast, um, not so much. I've got some uh, that I download and listen to on the, um, that I have on the phone, but I don't really listen to them as much. I like, uh, the, uh, you know, ones on, um, oddly enough on, um, I listen to, like to listen to podcasts on, on space and, um, and physics, mm -hmm. uh, just trying to learn something that I really don't understand very much about, um, the, uh, uh, what's his name? Tyson, uh, uh Neil, uh, the grass. Yes. So, uh, I, I've listened to him a few times. The, the, uh, the problem is if I'm in a car, I have a bad, I prefer to crank up something really loud from the 1980s, uh, <laughs> music wise. Um, or generally I will just NPR if I'm, uh, I'm listening to the news. So, uh, much more into the daily news, but uh, or uh, really loud music. So it's a little strange listening, seeing a guy driving a pickup truck, uh, driving through Omaha, listening to "Come On Eileen." But uh, <laughs> you know, that's kind of the way I do it. So, Chris, kind of wrapping it up. How can people follow you? Um, you mentioned Twitter. Um, what's your handle, and how can people connect with you? Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, Chris Clayton DTN. And, um, uh, you know, I'm on Twitter all the time. So, uh, you know, I do get a lot of uh, messages from people. I've got a message this morning from a uh, from another journalist asking me about drought, for instance, because they had some questions and I referred to them to a meteorologist on our staff. Um, so I'm always on Twitter uh, quite a bit. That's probably one of the easiest way to. Uh, uh, to connect with me in some way. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you, Chris. Um, I, this conversation has gone by really fast, um, about 40 minutes. That's crazy. But thank you so much to Chris Clayton um, at DTN, the Progressive Farmer, for coming on the podcast and talking to us about um, his coverage with ag policy. And from Holly, do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, this has been great. We appreciate it, Chris. I think, you know, some of us in, in ag journalism are, are um, generalists. You know, we cover a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. a little bit of everything. And, and I think it's always interesting to talk to somebody like you who really, um, you know, you specialize in a beat and you, um, you know it inside and out. So we appreciate your insight there. Well, thank you, Chris. Thanks, Holly. And stay tuned for details on our next episode. But thank you, Chris, for coming on and um, talking to us today. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Hope it was useful. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Chris.
This has been an Ag Communicators Network podcast. Thanks for listening. And please visit us online at agcomnetwork.com for more great content.